the fury. Stop these horrific games with human beings. And new focus. No one really cared about that on the national media perspective until 50 show up in Martha's Vineyard. Now unprecedented lawsuits. Illegal seizure. False arrest. With an election ahead. We are going to remember these actions and the hypocrisy when we vote in November. My name is Naomi Esther Blamir. Candidate for a cabinet seat. Agriculture commissioner trying to keep the Democrats seat at the table. Even on the darkest days, it has been the honor of my life to know you, to work with you. Yielding back for the last time, South Florida Congressman's parting words. So I thank you, Madam Speaker, and for the last time, I go back. The big news of the week and the newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. Michael is off and we have so much to get to this morning, but we begin with what we are all watching this week in South Florida. Tropical Storm Ian, meteorologist Brandon Orr has updates from the advisory released just minutes ago. Brandon. We just got this in within the last half hour, uh, Glenna, and we have maximum sustained wind still at 50 miles per hour. That remains unchanged. Its satellite appearance at first glance doesn't look too impressive. I'm noticing uh, some curvature and uh, the circulation getting a little bit better defined, though, and that's telling me once it hits that northwestern Caribbean, the waters that are prime for rapid intensification, this has the potential to really take off in intensity late tonight and especially during the day tomorrow. The latest cone, and they updated it during that. At 11 a.m. advisory still has this going up to category four strength, especially once it gets into the southeastern Gulf of Mexico. The cone, at least the center of it, still focused in on northern Florida. But take note, the cone extends from about four miles all the way over to Pensacola. That tells us where the center of the storm will go. The impacts, especially with a category four hurricane that uh, would grow to a massive size, extend far outside of the cone. So even though we're outside of the cone here in South Florida, we're still looking at some impact. European model still brings it in just south of Tampa, so around Sarasota or so. American model closer to about Tallahassee. Either way, we're looking at heavy rain here in South Florida that could reach about three to six inches. That could pose a flooding risk. That's mainly on Tuesday and Wednesday. Wind gusts could go up to tropical storm force within the rain bands that will swing around. We'll also have to watch out for isolated water spouts and perhaps a tornado or two within some of the rain bands that will likely reach the keys around Monday night. The rest of us as early as Tuesday morning, we're dealing with those occasional rain bands coming in off the Atlantic. There is a lot more to pin down with this storm system. We're going to know a lot more information with our new computer model runs coming in over the next couple of hours. Stick with us here on air. I'll be back with you, Glenna, here in just under an hour with an update. Brandon, thanks. Look forward to that. Now to the growing debate over the governor's plan to profile and relocate migrants from the southern border to other cities as a hedge, he says, against them coming to Florida. The growing debate gets more complicated than the headlines may indicate. The latest of lawsuit filings is by state senator Jason Pizzo, but as a citizen and a taxpayer. When a flight takes off from Texas, and only stops temporarily in the state of Florida without allowing for disembarkation or it's not a forced landing, that, uh, that flight is still in flight. And you forced my hand uh, to, to come to Tallahassee and tell you to stop. 
Governor Ron DeSantis has defended not only the relocation plan, but the way it's being carried out. We asked him this week whether giving so-called sanctuary states advance notice of those arrivals might have mitigated the blowback. Absolutely not. You know how I know that? Biden has dumped people all over the fruited plain. You have really serious things happening along the way to the border. Once they, they get in, are basically destitute in some parking lot. No one really cared about that on the national media perspective until 50 show up in Martha's Vineyard. The first federal lawsuit filed this week by immigrant advocates in Massachusetts accuses the state of Florida, the governor, and the Department of Transportation, which administers the funding, of coercing and misleading and discriminating against the migrants for those trips. And that was filed by Lawyers for Civil Rights in Boston. And the attorney is Oren Selstrom, who is live with us right now. Oren, it's good to see you, and we do appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. So we want to talk about a lawsuit in detail and go through that and also about some confusion maybe in immigration policy and, and also the politics of all this, which is very important. So let's start with the lawsuit. Um, your lawsuit alleges that these migrants' rights were violated, federal rights were violated. Explain that. That's correct. We filed a federal class action lawsuit this week against Governor DeSantis and his accomplices challenging his illegal scheme to fraudulently induce a very vulnerable class of immigrants to cross state lines through false promises and misrepresentation. So when you say, let's, let's dig deep into that a little bit. When you say false promises, um, I think everyone who has been watching any of the news this week is well aware of pamphlets that were given out. Uh, the governor himself said he's had people on the ground in Texas profiling who might be coming to Florida. We've heard accounts of, you've heard accounts and your attorneys have heard accounts firsthand from the migrants in Massachusetts about what they were told about housing and jobs. Um, the governor had said that there were no specific promises made, rather that sanctuary states that they were going to, they were told, have more resources like those things to help them. So where is that line between lied to and sort of given an option? Well, it is very clear in this case that Governor DeSantis and his accomplices uh, were well across the line into deceit and misrepresentation. You have to remember that this uh, group of immigrants is already in a highly vulnerable state. These are people that have fled persecution and violence in their home country that have crossed Central America and Mexico, most in most cases, largely on foot. They come to the United States as a place of refuge, turn themselves into federal immigration authorities who process them and release them. And it is then that Governor DeSantis's accomplices on the ground in Texas began preying on that very vulnerability and trying to build the trust that our clients had in them, um, giving them gift cards to McDonald's, for example, people who are desperately hungry. Uh, we had one client who, again, had walked across Mexico to reach the United States, and so his shoes were worn out. And this woman who identified herself as Perla, uh, you know, said she was just a good Samaritan, offered to buy him a new pair of shoes. So it was really insidious the way that Governor DeSantis's accomplices really worked to build trust in our clients, induce them to fly, and then, of course, it turned out to all be a political stunt. 
So let me, um, the words political stunt have been used a lot. Um, and let me just kind of point out the, the words that you're using, accomplices and insidious. They're very charged words that are in the lawsuit and, and you are building your case and we certainly appreciate that. But, but maybe uh, let me just present some perceptions that I've heard from people who are supportive of this plan in that, um, to your point, these, these migrants have been through hell, hell on earth, uh, jungles and, and who knows, um, beatings some of them have talked about, brutal beatings by smugglers or people taking advantage of them along the way. Here they land. They, they are homeless. They are destitute. They, they are waiting for asylum uh, process with no resources. So, so what, what is wrong with the assistance that they got along that way? So you're absolutely right in pointing out all of the vulnerabilities that this population has. So if people are in that situation, you don't lie to them. You don't deceive them. You don't tell them there are going to be jobs and there are going to be educational opportunities for their children. And there's going to be assistance with their immigration cases waiting for them if they board these flights. Uh, it's, it's really insidious to build people's trust through that kind of false misrepresentation. Then they were flown to Martha's Vineyard, as you know. It was about 15 minutes before the plane was landing, was landing that they were told that they were not going to Boston or Washington, D.C. or any major metropolitan city, but they were instead going to go to an island that is only reachable by boat and airplane. Uh, they were, once the plane touched down, these people that had built trust in this very insidious way abandoned them at that point. They had given them, you know, cell phone numbers to call when they were in Texas saying, we're good Samaritans, we just want to help you. There will be, you know, uh, services and jobs waiting for you on the other side. People started desperately calling once the plane landed, landed and no one was waiting for them saying, what's going on? No one was on the other end of those lines anymore. They, Governor DeSantis and his accomplices had used them for political purposes, were done with them and abandoned them at that point. Let, let me ask you a question about that. The governor talked about, and, and we see in state records, there is a contractor being paid to handle the logistics of all of this. Might the governor himself have plausible deniability in the actions of the paid subcontractors? Might this lawsuit be better directed at the contractors working and actually doing those actions? Well, we have sued both Governor DeSantis and his accomplices, but the liability runs straight to the top. This was Governor DeSantis's plan. He stood up the second the planes arrived and said, I did this. So that is his responsibility, and it is his responsibility uh, that this, there was this fraud and misrepresentation that induced our clients to fly. He knew that there was no one waiting on the other side. He knew that this was uh, intentionally planned so that there was no notice. So no, there is no deniability there. He took responsibility for that, and he's going to have to answer that in court. We are talking to Oren Selstrom, Lawyers for Civil Rights, on behalf of the Venezuelan migrants. We have some more questions for you. We will be back in a couple of minutes, so stay with us.
We are back with Oren Selstrom, lawyers for civil rights in Boston, representing those Venezuelan migrants that were shipped to at First Martha's Vineyard and now are on Cape Cod. Oren, in the in the bigger picture of the immigration issue that this has brought so much light to, um, you can't ignore the numbers of migrants crossing the border in the past year have exploded a record high. And I think there's a lot of confusion when this issue comes into play in the headlines who is legal and who is not. Those migrants presented themselves at the border, made asylum requests, yet others don't. Explain in, in sort of layman's terms, how, how is the border managed and what rights do the people have when they come across? Our clients did everything that they needed to do and were, were required to do under federal immigration law. Uh, you need to be in the United States to request asylum, and that is what they did. The federal immigration authorities processed them and released them, and they are legally authorized to be in the United States until their immigration proceedings unfold. So that is the status of our clients, and it was then, as I said, that the Governor DeSantis's accomplices preyed upon them and really exploited the very vulnerable situation that they were in in order to induce them into this political stunt. So when the governor refers to them as illegal aliens, technically and legally, that would not be a proper term to use. Is that right? Well, that's not a proper legal term for anyone, but it is certainly the case that our clients and the class that we seek to represent are legally authorized to be in this country. And the federal government has said that unless and until there are immigration proceedings that say otherwise, they are legally authorized to be here. So it is really a case of state interference in federal immigration law, which is another problematic part of this entire stunt that we have raised in our lawsuit that was filed this week. And in the, the numbers of migrants who are coming over, who might be doing it properly, who might be requesting asylum, is there, the, if you are part of the infrastructure of immigration law and, and asylum seeking, it, is it tenable now in the United States? Is it doable with so many people requesting asylum? There are many people across the political spectrum who believe that immigration reform is necessary, that there need to be, for example, more pathways to citizenship. But the way to have that conversation is not to use human beings as political props to make a point to start the conversation. That is what is so appalling about what Governor DeSantis has done. And we have heard from people all across the country, across the political spectrum, who share that view, who really object to the idea that this was using human beings as props, as objects, denying their humanity. If we're going to have a conversation about immigration and immigration reform in this country, it's got to start from a place of humanity, from recognizing that people are people. And that is what is so objectionable about this political stunt that Ron DeSantis pulled uh, in the last week and a half and why we felt it was necessary to go to federal court to stop this from happening again in the future. Oren Selstrom, Lawyers for Civil Rights in Boston, re uh, representing the Venezuelan migrants. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. 
The outrage makes the headlines, as you've been hearing. The support for the relocation plans, not so much, but it is there, and you'll hear it from a politically active Venezuelan American in South Florida next. The lawsuits, the outrage, have dominated the national headlines, but there is plenty of support for the governor's migrant relocation plan and the way it has focused national attention on border security and immigration issues, which is exactly what the governor wanted. Ernesto Ackerman heads an organization called the Independent Venezuelan American Citizens. He is a longtime South Florida resident and Venezuelan immigrant, and unlike many protesting this week, he for, uh, firmly supports those migrant Lights. Ernesto, I know this was a little spontaneous today. It is so glad to have you on this program. Thank you, Glenna. Thank you so much for having me. So I understand during the break, um, I was told that you were indeed able to hear our last segment with the attorney for the migrants. And I was wondering, just generally speaking, what do you make of that lawsuit? Well, you know, I think the, the whole immigration law is broken. And that's why, you know, lawyers go to those little corners and take by tweezers, you know, pieces of the law, and then they do whatever they do. That's the job. They, they, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm, I I don't know exactly the, the law. So let me but, let me ask you let me ask you this way then um, you know you've kind of uh, for tr full transparency you've kind of been a go-to guy for me on Venezuelan issues for a very long time, and um, you know we we have a, a governor now who vehemently opposes the social dictatorship, as he calls it, that Nicolas Maduro has formed in Venezuela. Um, we've watched the social and economic unraveling of Venezuela and its people. And we hear the governor and we hear many of the Republicans in South Florida taking every opportunity to oppose that and socialism. And yet they are now opposed to having the people fleeing that take refuge in South Florida while they wait for their asylum claims. What what do you make of that? Well, uh, Glenna, we need to see that in two years since the administration of President Biden took uh, office, there is more, we don't know exactly, three, four, or five million. You can do any number you want. Only God knows how many have entered in those two years. Why the Democrats that have the Congress, the Senate, and the presidency, why they don't propose an immigration reform? Something to do so we don't have this kind of problem. Well, so didn't though, in the contrary, uh, but Ernesto, there has been yeah. immigration reforms definitely by South Florida congressmen and women of both parties. It just can't get through. In a, in a bipartisan way, the rest of the country. But but here we are right now, to your point, the numbers are record number of people crossing the border during the Biden administration. What what do you propose? You're so you're very supportive of this relocation plan, but but is is that the way to do this? Well, after two years, we don't hear anything and nothing is happening in the border even you don't agree, it's still open because the border is open. And that's why we have three, four million people coming in that we don't know who they are. As I explained to you, only 13 guys 
went to New York and destroyed the two towers, only 13. Okay, well, that, that's kind of, that, that's kind of, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's kind of apples and the 9-11 um, people who got through the border, criminals, is okay. kind of apples and oranges to the, to the people we're talking about now in, in Martha's Vineyard. And let me just ask you this, because you bring up a very good point. Border security versus desperate families is really what we're talking about now. How to secure the border against crime and drugs and how to admit desperate families under the immigration rules that the United States has and has always had in a very humane way, but for certain periods yeah. of history, which Lena, is all other story. How do we do that? Lena, we need to filter who is coming and who is not coming. All these people that is coming from Venezuela don't deserve the political assignment they're coming for economic reasons. There is economic reasons in all over the world. And the United States cannot open the borders and have here millions and millions of people coming in because they have economic problems. There is so many things in this issue, uh, Glenna, that people are not talking about. How can we see the the videos in the in the media how these people come and they are poor people. There is people that don't have money. How can they pay the coyotes when we know these people is charging five, six, eight thousand dollars? Who is supporting this? Who is paying for all of this? A an and interesting question. And then when they do get to the border, should they have the opportunity? to make the asylum request. The governor says the asylum process is being abused. That's what the governor told us this week. Um, but the asylum process is there. So once they present, are you in favor of allowing these people to make the asylum request and, and maybe do deny you know, it? Dana, do you know that there is more than 200 or 300,000 Venezuelans with political application for more than six years. There is cases with more than six years. These people have had been waiting in less, and now we have four, three million people coming in. How are we gonna solve this? That we, we cannot have, again, we cannot have an open border. Everybody comes here, applies for political asylum, stays here for six, seven years with papers, and when are we gonna finish with this? What What is the end? So what I think, and it's not like everybody wants to make it look like that it's a political reason, it was a ring bell, something that he called the attention on everybody. And now everybody's talking about the problem. So let's see if there will be a solution because now comes the election and hopefully they're gonna lose the Congress and Senate and let's see what's going to happen if we can put an end to this craziness in the border. So the election in November this week, um, the South Florida has probably the largest Venezuelan community outside of Venezuela in Doral, in Weston. In Doral this week, there were some uh, once solid Republican voters who were Venezuelan Americans who out and out said that this will affect their vote in November. Are you seeing that? No, I really don't. Uh, and you know, 
if you look at those manifestations, it's not more than 20 people. So I don't think that's the majority. The majority came to here to respect the law, to make everybody live in freedom and democracy, which is not happening. So I think three, four that got a change, it's okay. This is a free country. You can decide whatever you want. But the majority, what I am receiving, is supporting that we need to put a control in the border. Ernesto Ackerman, it is always good to talk to you. I love having our conversations, and I appreciate that you were on with us today. Lena, thank you very much. And by the way, Happy New Year to all the Jewish people. Thank you, and very same to you. Thank you. And next, what do gas, guns, and marijuana have in common? They all come under the management of Florida's Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. A political newcomer from South Florida is one of the candidates for that office, and we have some questions for her when we come back. In one of the big statewide races in November, a political newcomer from South Florida, a Democrat, is taking on the Republican State Senate President in the race for Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services, which is also one of the four state cabinet positions. Currently in that role, Nikki Freed is the lone Democrat in statewide elected government. We invited both candidates to be with us today. Senate President Wilton Simpson has not responded. Naomi Blamir did. She is a businesswoman active in local government and now state candidate for you to consider. Naomi, it's great to have you. Good morning. Good afternoon, I guess. <laughs> Good afternoon. Thank you so very much. It's an honor and a privilege to be here today. All ours. All ours. So what, um, start with a big, broad question. What, what qualifies you with your background to be the Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the longest title in state government? Thank you for this question. Um, so I have 20 plus years of experience in uh, retail management, commercial banking. I work for the second largest bank in the United States and I'm also a nonprofit leader. And last but not least, I did not wait to uh, run for office in, or in order to serve. I currently serve as a commissioner on the planning commission in my city. I am also the elected vice chair for the Commission for Women, and I also serve as a business owner on the Community Redevelopment Advisory Board. And so uh, with that body of experience and also being elected as a committee woman for the Miami-Dade Democratic Party, I think that my uh, wealth of knowledge and personal experience puts me in a great position to serve as Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services. So you chose this particular position, which is kind of a, a plate spinner, a juggler. You have weights and measures for at the at the gas pump and you have uh, medical marijuana and um, the hemp industry that the at that Commissioner Freed right now has made a priority. You administer the concealed carry for the gun permits. What would be your, do you have a priority in this particular department to focus upon? Absolutely. Um, I have four main priorities. Number one, the commissioner also uh, oversees the free breakfast and lunch for all students in the public school systems. And as a mother, I want to ensure that every child has a nutritional, 
breakfast and lunch every school day. Second, I want to ensure, as the current commissioner has done very well, I want to keep the NRA out of this department. I want to ensure that every person who applies for a concealed weapon license gets fully vetted, and those that qualify to get it, get it quickly, and those that do not qualify receive a letter of disqualification are not and are not permitted to have the license. You know, the uh, candidate you're running against, State Senate President Wilton Simpson, a veteran lawmaker, um, lots of money in his war chest, lots of connections in Tallahassee. Why would you do a better job than he would in that position? Well, listen, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a small business owner, and I am a hardworking Floridian. And I understand right now that Florida has become unaffordable. People are concerned about how they pay for gas. People are concerned about getting a two-bedroom apartment and not being able to find one under $2,000. People are concerned on, on how they're going to put food on the table. My opponent is a millionaire. I do not believe he understands every, the everyday need of Floridians. I think I am well positioned to better serve in that capacity. Well, let me, let me push back on that a little bit because while all of those things may well be true, the position that you're running for is not a lawmaking or policymaking position, rather it's a ministerial and a management position. So, so why would you have an effect in that respect? You are absolutely right. I'm not a lawmaker. Nevertheless, I believe that this position requires me to do three things. Number one, to be a manager, to manage the resources. Number two, to be a regulator. And number three, to advocate, to advocate for every single need that Floridians bring forth and desire for someone to speak up to. And so while my priorities clearly show that I will um, ensure that I roll out the responsibilities of the Commissioner of Agriculture while managing a budget of $1.9 billion, overseeing about 3,600 employees and some 19 departments and divisions, I also understand that the basic needs of Floridians are going to be before me as well, and I will need to advocate for them. You know, Naomi, there are a couple of issues that have really overtaken the headlines in past months. Um, you know what those are, uh, abortion rights in this state, and also the either the perception or the reality of the LGBTQ community that civil rights are under assault and have been eroded, and that is just what we are going through as a community right now. Um, there have been a couple of very prominent Democrats in this state who have pulled endorsements that they had made for you because of some of your social media media posts about those issues. Would you explain that to us? So I'll begin with this. I have always been a woman who believes in a woman's right to choose. As a woman, as a woman of color, as a woman of Haitian descent, I understand how important that right is. And while I personally have my own views on what my choice would be, I want to allow every single woman in this country to have the opportunity to choose for themselves. As it relates to the LGBTQIA community, I've always been an ally, will continue to be an ally, and currently we have gone on a state 
statewide coordinator who is helping me to engage the community, to connect with them and to identify their needs specific needs that they have concerning their senior citizens, concerning uh, young adults who are not able to uh, get health care. These are the things that I'm going to want to fight for. And while, yes, I may, I am disappointed on with those that have rescinded, nevertheless, I am grateful for the some 698,000 uh, voters who chose me as their Democratic nominee and caused me to win this nomination by 50.4%. So, okay, so you have expressed great support for women's choice, great support for the LGBTQ community. So help us understand what those posts were about then. Why, why, why make those social media posts? I think what the people want to know is whether or not Naomi Esther Blamir is going to be a leader that is going to serve them without prejudice. And the answer is absolutely. I am going to serve the 22 million residents of the state of Florida, no matter their race, their color, their religion, and or sexual orientation. I am a leader who's going to fight for every single resident. Naomi Blumier, it is great to meet you electronically, and I appreciate your time with us this morning. Thank you so very much. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. A new beginning for South Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch, who left the Capitol for the final time this week. We get to pick his brain one more time before he goes and joins us live next. Twenty twenty two elections are underway without a few dozen veteran lawmakers on the ballot who have all decided to head in other directions. Among them, Congressman Ted Deutsch, who has been a powerful voice in some of the biggest national issues important to South Florida. Congressman Deutsch gave his final floor speech this week. And we had hoped to have a little clip of that for you. Deutsch is a Democrat repping Northwest Broward, Fort Lauderdale, and Boca for 12 years, soon to become the CEO of the American Jewish Committee, but not before downloading a few minutes with us. Yes, from the front seat of a car. Good, good afternoon, Ted. <laughs> All right, so. Uh, thanks, I feel, like I, I feel like I should be doing traffic on the way to the Dolphins game, but go ahead, it's great to be with you. Thanks. Well, I just want to throw this out there that we have uh, Anna Maria Rodriguez, senator, Florida senator, was the first to join us from the front seat of a car parked along the turnpike on her way to Tallahassee. But you're the first to be in a moving car. Are you moving? To joining us on uh, this week in South Florida. moving faster, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we appreciate that you make such a big effort. We are certainly going to miss you and your voice in Congress, but um, we had hoped to air a little bit of what was a very emotional floor speech that you made, um, teared up a little bit. Why are you leaving if this was so important to you? Why leave? Um, well, it's a, it, it is a really bittersweet time for me. I have loved representing South Florida. It, it's really been an incredible uh, honor. The people I've met, the things I've been able to do for them, uh, the, the just being a voice for the community. Uh, I wasn't lucky to leave. I just had this opportunity to, to uh, take over a, a, a global NGO and continue to work on so many of the issues I'm passionate about on the global stage. 
it's um, it was a tough, tough decision. I think it's the right one, uh, but certainly this week, especially, I've been I've been thinking mostly about the work that I've been privileged to do these past seven terms. You know, I want to talk a little bit about that, um, but first, kind of the news of the week and and something that's actually relevant to what you were just talking about. You have done so much work on um, religious issues, Jewish issues, anti-Semitism, the bipartisan. Uh, committee against anti-Semitism. And this week, one of your colleagues from Michigan, Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat from Michigan, um, issued a challenge in the House. She is a Palestinian American. Her challenge to your party was that you can't be a progressive and support the policies of Israel toward Palestinians. I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't exactly what she said, but that was her intent. And, and I was wondering if you would weigh in on that. Well, that was that was actually what she said, and and it was outrageous. And uh, and there's so many of us uh, down here in South Florida, especially, who understand that that being supportive of Israel and the U.S. relationship is part and parcel of the the progressive political views that the people hold. So, is based on true values, values of democracy, human rights, LGBT, women's rights. And so it's a just a the most progressive country in a region which has some real challenges. That's the reason that we support Israel, and, and no one's voices, as I said this week, no one's voices are going to be sh are going to be silenced or shut out. No, no one should be kept away from the table engaging on issues that they care about. When you attack someone's support for Israel, in in so many cases, you're you're really attacking them for who they are as a member of the Jewish community. And that's that's just unacceptable and uh, and outrageous. And I was so, so pleased to see not just Jewish members respond, but so many progressive members of all denominations speak out in strong opposition to what she said. And, and certainly that is something that the community in South Florida, both Democrat and Republican, feel very strongly about in, in our region, mostly. Um, Congressman, I want to talk to you a little bit about something very related. The Anti-Defamation League report out a couple of weeks ago talking about and, and um, documenting the rise in hate crime and hate crime attacks in the Jewish community and also in other minority communities. Uh, this is something that you have done such work on, and I, I'm guessing like in your new role with the American Jewish Committee, that will continue. Sure, absolutely. One of the, well, look, we've seen, let me back up, we've seen this rise in it. Uh, violent attacks that have taken place across to Los Angeles, New York, Muncie, Jersey City. Uh, and we've seen the increase in online attacks. We've seen the increase in desecration of property. And, and we've seen in South Florida, especially these outrageous, not just flyers, but but people who um, uh, who are, are filled with hate and anti-Semitism. So one of the most important things that we need to do as well as a Jewish community and, and overall uh, in my new role, is to make sure that everybody understands that when anti-Semitism exists, it's not just the Jewish community at risk. Uh, it, it, it really means that there is this 
uh, this problem underlying society that we have to tackle together with our, our allies and with those who are affected um, by this hate. So that's clearly something we're going to focus on. The ABL report has shown it, AJC's reports have shown it. Uh, we need to, to come together and, and combat and confront it wherever it occurs. You know, I will say uh, in our tenure together, which has been long, you have always been such a positive voice. And in your floor speech, one of the things that really struck me was how you talked about being so inspired, um, particularly after tragedies like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas murders, that's your district. Uh, you then talked about all of those students and the work that they did. And the theme there was the inspiration you took from others during your service. I wonder if you would kind of take us out with that. Sure. It, it's been the, the most inspiring part of my work. It, it's not, it's the, op the opportunity that I've had so many people that I've been privileged to meet that I, I didn't expect to meet and clearly would have preferred that I not have the kind of personal relationships I do. But whether it's the Parkland families who have turned their grief into, into action to make our community safer, the student survivors of Parkland who, who launched a movement that has transformed American society, the Levinson family uh, that I got to know so well and, and with whom I worked, uh, not just on behalf of Bob, but uh, on behalf of all Americans held hostage and wrongfully detained across the world. It, it's the work that, that they do that has inspired me. And this is why we do this. And it's why it, it's so important. And it's why there are so many opportunities for Congress and for all of us as a community to, to stand together to address the problems that we face, no matter how challenging the moment, how challenging the partisanship, or how challenging uh, the odds, how high the odds might seem. That is uh, what we will end on. We are <laughs> challenging with this shot in the front seat of a car, but we did it. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Best of luck to you. We'll um, miss you. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for always doing so much to keep our community well-informed and thoughtful, and I, I'm really grateful for the opportunities. Thank you. All right, we will be right back. Stay tuned. Just in the last few minutes, Governor Ron DeSantis addressed Florida as the state races for Tropical Storm Ian. Take a listen. It really is important to stress the degree of uncertainty that still exists. And so anybody from Tampa Bay all the way to Escambia County, uh, there are different tracks that would take it into any one of those places. And then I would also say to other Floridians, uh, even if you're not necessarily right in the eye of the path of the storm, uh, there's going to be pretty broad impacts throughout throughout the state. You're going to have wind, you're going to have water, you, there could be flooding on the east coast of Florida as a result of this. It's a, it's a big storm. So, so just prepare for that and understand that that's something uh, that may happen. All right, let's get the latest advisory on Tropical Storm Ian. This is the advisory that came out a little more than an hour ago. Maximum sustained winds are at 50 miles per hour. It looks rather disorganized on satellite because it is disorganized, but it is expected to get itself together in a hurry later on tonight and especially tomorrow. Rapid intensification of the storm is expected as it crosses over into the southeastern Gulf, and that'll happen on Tuesday. A very powerful Category 4 hurricane. And remember, even though we are outside of the cone, the impacts from a very large Category 
4 hurricane will be felt outside of the cone. So we are expecting at least some impacts here, but there's still some uncertainty as to exactly where this is going to make landfall. We do expect widespread heavy rain. Three to six inches is possible no matter where the storm falls within the cone, and that's going to create a flooding threat here in South Florida Tuesday and Wednesday. Some strong wind gusts in some of those rain bands and perhaps a tornado or two stay updated with the forecast. We'll let you know how this evolves throughout the day today, especially on local 10.com any time of the day, Glenna. Brandon, you know weather is important when you are in the This Week in South Florida house. Everyone, to rewatch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, just scan this QR code with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. It is great to have you here as always this hour. We love to hear from you and we thank you for being with us. Have a wonderful Sunday and stay dry.